So, do you know the history of how the song One Shining Moment was created? I did just see this today. It's awesome. It really is. What better way to write a sports theme song than with a, a man who couldn't get the attention of an attractive waitress? I think it's worth reading. I have a New York Times article pulled up, and I'm just going to read an excerpt because just as a public service announcement for anybody who does not know about this. So it involves a young man, age 31, named David Barrett, who was a struggling folk singer who was just performed in East Lansing, Michigan in 1986. And he was sitting in a bar and the most beautiful waitress on the planet, in his words, sat down next to him. Quote, the kind of woman who is so good looking that you don't even bother talking to her. But apparently he did try talking to her and his shot, he shot a shot and his shot was about Larry Bird being really good at basketball. Which, I mean, come on, what a great move. Like, this is a a solid, because you know you're getting a winner if she bites on that. Right. So it's, it's great for him to get information, but unfortunately... She was not particularly interested, so he looked up at the game. There was a fast break, and when he looked back down, she was gone. She was like, nah, I'm not dealing with this. So he was kind of mad about it, and he decided that he was going to overcome the snub by writing the song, which he did on a cocktail napkin in 20 minutes. I love it. Here's my my one... It's like the original grunge grunge hit. (laughs) My one follow-up question... Uh, I hate to be this guy, but do you believe the story? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I do, just because it's it's not like it makes him out to be some genius or something. Well, he says he wrote that it in she was, 20 minutes. I mean, she, well, that just means that, you know, maybe it's not that great of a song. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's like an all-time classic, but I, I, I'm not saying I don't believe the story. I just, I don't know. It's Anytime I see something like this that generates a ton of attention and you know whatever on the internet i just kind of feel like i'm a little skeptical i think if he had framed it a little bit differently and said my girlfriend of many years decided that she was going to leave me for some other person who doesn't like larry bird and i wanted to show her (laughs) by being a legend that might i might not believe as much this was just like yeah i have no game and so i quickly wrote a song (laughs) to feel better <laughs> yeah it, it is kind of perfect like that's not I, I don't know i love it i love it that was maybe not his one shining moment but then he turned it into one which really just encapsulates march madness right i mean if you're yukon in january that's you getting shot down by the waitress but then you have your your one shining moment in march and april coming through you like that segue you like what i did there Mm-hmm. That was good. Yeah, thanks. That was strong. Thanks. The one thing I noticed in the Once Shining Moment video for this year, FDU only got like three seconds of airtime for being the second 16 seed. That should be a big deal. They should have had like, I don't know, at least eight seconds. I watched it one time and uh, I didn't love this year's One Shining Moment. I just didn't feel it felt it felt like it didn't quite adequately represent uh, how I felt about the tournament this year because of things like that. Like FDU not getting enough shine. I, I don't know. I just, maybe I'm over it. 
I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just kind of like it didn't really have the same appeal this year. Yeah, I felt that way too, but also didn't really want to watch it because I knew the key A play was going to be in there and prominently <laughs> featured, which it was. So I was inclined not to watch it anyway. Yeah, Turquavion's big dunk made it, but that was it for State. So not really interested other than that. So we can move on from talking about that to talk about the national championship game, which was played last night. UConn continued its amazing run through the NCAA tournament. They beat everybody by double digits. Their 120-point margin of victory over the course of the tournament is the top in the top five best performances ever for a team in the modern era, which is just amazingly impressive. They really never felt like they were in trouble at any point, even when the game yesterday got down to five points when San Diego State made that little bit of a run. I don't know. I never got the sense that they were actually going to lose the game. The definitely one of the most dominant like runs to a title that I think we've seen in recent history. I mean, you look through their entire season really, and they won every single game against non-conference opponents by double digits an average of 24 plus points in terms of their margin of victory over the course of the whole season not just the tournament and you look at the tournament and and yeah the closest game they had was that miami 13 point win the whole time they just looked like they looked like men against boys and it was a a dominant performance from the first round all the way through uh, last night's game against san diego state and i mean there's no doubt in my mind now i mean this is five titles in 25 years that UConn is a blue blood. This is um, absolutely one of the best programs in the country. Can I lean in on that for a second? Because I've seen that conversation taking place all over the place today is whether UConn is a blue blood. Is that like a marketing campaign that people are getting in on? Like, I was not aware that like people get an actual certificate of authenticity on getting to be a blue blood i just felt like it was a a term people use for perennially good teams but now it's like people have to like i saw one tweet by a prominent sports writer who was like now indiana is out of the blue blood category and yukon is in and it's like i'm sorry does you indiana have to turn in something like (laughs) but like yes obviously yukon has been one of the best programs they've won more championships than anybody in the last 25 years yeah, it, it is an interesting like dialogue that we have every every time one of these programs that has a history of success starts to have success again, whether it's, you know, Indiana winning some games for the first time in a little bit or, you know, UCLA kind of coming back to a position of dominance or whatever it may be. This is a, what, where people want to jump is, is like, are they a blue blood program? And I think that it is sort of indicative of this larger thing that we do in sports talk where everything has to be evaluative. We all, we have to assign good or bad. We have to say, did they qualify for this? What is essentially just a, a made up award that we give programs to say that they are blue blood programs, but it is kind of, I don't know. To me, it's sort of a fun discourse to say, like when you're thinking about those elite programs, 
what schools belong in that top tier of they can get any recruit, any coach would would want to go there, right? That they're always in the national championship conversation. To me, that's what that represents. And I think it is a little bit of, it is fun to look at kind of, you know, who qualifies, who meets that standard. But it is, you're right, it is ridiculous to sort of say, like, they don't get some certificate. There's no official membership that, that they have to have or anything like this. I think to me, it is just, if anybody doubted whether UConn belonged in the conversation among the elite programs in the, in the nation, that they are, they have erased that doubt now. I mean, this is three different coaches. That was an interesting take I saw was somebody on Twitter was talking about like the way that they see blue blood is being able to win multiple championships across multiple coaches. So they don't count Duke because it's all been under coach K, which I think is ridiculous. Right. Mm. Well, but you know, it was coach K before his hip replacement and after. (laughs) So that's kind of a different version of coach K. That's right. Really just a whole different man. Yeah, I I think it's fair overall to classify UConn that way with 25 years and three different national championship coaches. And, you know, they don't have the history that North Carolina does. It's more of a modern history for UConn, but it has been so impressive. I mean, you which fan bases out there would trade that 25-year span for what they have? I mean, maybe Duke maybe Kansas. I don't know. Right. It's, it's, they are up there in like one of the top one or two programs, even with the down years that they had, like being able to win with three different coaches proves that even a small state school like that in the big East, which is a conference that many people have seemingly overlooked is, you know, can do anything at this point. I mean, I don't think they'd trade with anybody, right? Like, or or I don't think, anybody would not trade with them i guess it's the same sentiment because five and 25 is i mean nobody's doing better than that so yeah you could argue duke um i think they have what four in that time is that right right Mm -hmm. so so i mean i don't know if you're if you're a yukon fan you've got to be feeling pretty good and i think you and i we were watching the game together and uh just a good time to remember poor kevin ollie man they really just did not do him right this is the thing that i've always said about uva and i've managed to live up to this standard that if uva ever won a national championship i was going to be content with the coach even if we had like 20 straight years of just abject failure and uva hasn't been that even though many fans are upset that we haven't won a tournament game in three years but you can look at the same situation with uconn they went a bunch of years without winning any tournament games bookended by winning the national championship this year and in 2014 and in 2011, even though there was like a significant period of time in between 2014 and this year with that, they were not any good. Didn't have any, uh, anything to speak of. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's definitely, it's just wild to me. And I don't know, maybe this is being a fan of a, program that hasn't won a championship in 40 years to me if you win one you get some grace and yeah i think i'm with you if nc state were to win a championship i don't really care what else happens like i just feel like once you have that it's such a sweet moment having experienced it for like with the braves and the world series but never you know a team that i consider myself like like nc state it's a different level of passion for me and that would be an insane feeling 
it's just wild to me that like what Kevin Ollie did and taking that team to a, a pretty improbable championship and now like the fact that it has to be a different coach like Jim Calhoun got old and retired uh or whatever kind of happened there at the end of his career he had a sort of an unceremonious ending but the um you know like Kevin Ollie being sort of forced out shortly after winning a championship is sort of absurd to me and let's just say I don't think that's going to happen here to to Danny Hurley oh no he can stay around probably for as long as he wants to be there he I'm sure he will get other big programs that try to lure him away but i don't know why he would want to leave but people do leave from big programs so but yeah i think he's permanently cemented looking at a lot of the way too early preseason top 25 lists that came out which is also one of my favorite things about the tournament is like the tournament has just ended and now with the (laughs) transfer portal there are a million people who are still declaring and people are writing articles like, oh, yeah, I think UConn definitely is in a position to repeat next year. It's like you don't even know who's going to be on the team next year. Come on. Yeah, it is. a. Sometimes I think that we as sports fans, it's kind of like the Nick Saban thing where he wins a championship and he's upset because he's lost out on recruiting time. Like. As sports fans, we were like, oh, this championship, like this tournament was wild and so much fun. And now let's talk about next year. And it's like, well, hold on. Can we just enjoy this for a little bit? Can we, you know, talk about the fact that, you know, you have a team like San Diego State making a great run through the tournament um, just to run into a buzzsaw and talk about guys like like Adama Sonogo and and. Uh, there's great storylines that we still have from this year that we don't have to move on yet. And, and you're right. You can't logically move on yet because we don't have a full deck of cards in terms of our our information. And so I'm way more interested in actually sort of continuing the, the postmortem on this season. And so the thing that I'm really wondering your opinion on. So UConn wins the tournament. Do you think that this UConn basketball team was actually the best team in college basketball this season. Yeah, I think so. Over the course of the most of the season, I mean, they they really had like one month where they didn't play very well. But if you look at their performance in every other month, they played great. Their analytics were great. They were the best offensive rebounding team. They have several NBA caliber stars on their roster between Hawkins and Sonogo. I think they were an absolutely deserving champion. If you ran the simulation of this tournament a hundred times, would they win every time? No, they wouldn't. I think Alabama over the course of the season was probably right up there in terms of how talented they were and could have batched them. But yeah, I mean, I think UConn definitely should be considered a worthy champion. They didn't fluke their way into it. You can't beat every team by at least 13 points, 12 points, whatever it was, and kind of luck into it. You look at San Diego State in comparison, as as amazing as their tournament run was, they won by one point against Creighton on kind of a, some people think, controversial call. They won on a buzzer beater in the final four. I feel like if they had won a close game, people might say, wow, that was crazy, but they're definitely not the best team. UConn was the best team. No, I totally agree. I I think that the way I look at it, 
is that I look at the final four and kind of like what you're saying, any other team winning, I think we could have a real debate about this. Miami would be the closest one where you could say that they were consistently good all year. Were they the best team in the country? No, definitely not. UConn was always in that conversation and you can run the tape back on this exact show. And we talked about it, you know, throughout the season that this was a team that looked dangerous. We were talking about it early on, not to toot our own horn, but also like somebody's got to. And so, you know, I think that, you know, FAU couldn't have claimed that San Diego state couldn't have claimed that. Yeah. The other teams in the tournament that I think I like your, your approach of if you ran the simulation, what would it look like? You know, you mentioned Alabama, I think Kansas, Texas, UCLA, all of those are teams that I could have seen winning this. And we walk away saying, yeah, that is the best team. Houston, I think probably could have had an argument for that. I mean, they were number one, I think probably the longest over the course of the season, if not them, then Purdue. But it it's one of those things that I just, I feel like recently in the last few years, there's been a lot of conversation online about whether or not the NCAA tournament is weighted too heavily, whether it really gives us a legitimate result in terms of this is the best team. And I just think this year it did. And I think it's an interesting, like this looking at this UConn roster, like you said, you do have some NBA quality players, but you also have role players that just fit in and, and fill out their role. Tristan Newton lead leading scorer last night in the championship game. This is a transfer from ECU, right? Andre Jackson jr. Is an unbelievable player who just does a little bit of everything, right? He's not a um, blow you away superstar kind of lottery pick type guy, at least not statistically, but he kind of has that Draymond green type. I'm going to impact the game in every possible way. Fill the box score. You're going to feel my presence, even though it's not one of those things where you're going to look at the scoreboard at the end of the game and he's got 30 looking up and down the roster. This team was built to win a championship and they did withstand some weather, you know, through January and had some bumps in the road. And, you know, one of my favorite things was doing a Twitter search for UConn fraud and all the people who were like, yeah, UConn's a fraud. They were in the top five and now they're losing games to St. John's and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, but at the end of the day, what matters is who wins that game on April 3rd. And it was UConn. And I think they are absolutely a deserving champion. Yeah, I think people are so quick to bury any team that goes through a rut. These are still college kids. These are like 19, 20-year-old kids who haven't had a ton of experience playing together, particularly with the transfer portal. And so we expect everybody to just be perfect all the time. I think we're going to see, with more transfers and in the portal era, we are going to see more situations where teams struggle maybe early in the year or maybe midseason like UConn did before they can finally put it together and make a run. It's very common when teams make a run that, you know, that Kemba Walker team was the extreme example of that, where they just went on an insane run. It looked like they might not even make the tournament at all win the big East, then win the whole whole national championship. But, you know, I think we we're always so quick to bury programs when there are slip ups like that. So I'm sure people will remember this as an example and not do that in the future. But I, I do think it's funny you mentioned the part about using the tournament to decide, you know, whether it's it's a good metric of the best national champion. There have been of the last sixteen champions, thirteen of them have been top two seeds, and the three counter examples were all UConn 
in their last three national champions, they were outside the top two seed. So they're just they're just built different, right? I mean, that's the there's something about UConn. I guess they're able to to make these runs, and you know, again, I just think this one this one's special. I, the you think back to like those past years of you, the Kemba run was unreal, and that was powered by a singular star who uh, Kemba Walker is. I mean, I'm I'm a little biased because he came to play for my favorite NBA team, but to me as a college basketball player has a prominent spot sort of in the pantheon of greatest college players, uh, just an absolute legend. And, and, you know, then you have the UConn team with Shabazz Napier, like you kind of have these transcendent talents that led them. And this, this team is just different. And I, and I really like it. I, I love the way that I love the way Danny Hurley coaches and it was really cool, man, watching Bobby Hurley, who I'm not like, I'm not a a big fan of, but it was cool watching him see his brother win this title and just kind of the pride. And like, that's such a great basketball family. And also the game ends with a Hurley uh, with the ball in his hands, which is uh, uh, with Andrew Hurley getting to kind of run the clock out at the very end. Just it's the whole thing is cool. And I get caught up in storylines like that sometimes, but yeah, just a, a tremendous tournament. I overall, I, I really enjoyed this tournament. It was chaotic. It was unpredictable. Which, again, we were saying all along, that's what this looked like it would be. We got it, and I, I thought it was a, a fun tournament that gave us, you know, a result that that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think the only thing I would add to UConn's performance, and they've been an underrated defensive team all year. And I think that went a little bit unnoticed because their offense during the tournament was so impressive. But they really were keeping San Diego State from scoring. Obviously, there was the 11-minute field goal drought that San Diego State had in the first half that really put them behind the eight ball. But their length was really bothering San Diego State. There was just not a lot of driving lanes. And some of that, I think, was on San Diego State for not creating enough space on the floor. But Really, really tight defense from UConn all the way through the rebounding. Uh, they were holding San Diego State to one shot for most of the first half. And so that was keeping them from getting second chances. So I think that was an impressive part, too. I, I think their offense gets a lot of credit. Sonogo has had an amazing offensive tournament, but they really, I mean, they really put forward a impressive defensive performance as well. Yeah, it was interesting. When they talked to Coach Dutcher uh, uh, after the game about uh, San Diego State's kind of strategy in trying to get back into things, uh, you know, they they sort of, this was the, when they got down to FAU and had to fight back towards the end, the way they did that was sort of by attacking inside and going inside and kind of bruising against them. And he said they tried to go back to that game plan against UConn. And I really have to question that from a game plan perspective because, uh, UConn is not FAU and not as easily bruised inside. And you got to look at that and say, like, how do you think that's your strength to get back in this game? It's sort of beyond me because you have to look at, you know, the the UConn bigs down inside. You've got, you know, Caravan and Sonogo. And I mean, even some of the guards like uh, Jackson's a pretty big guard and Tristan Newton has some size to him. Um, you've got Klingon off the bench. 
it's weird to me that they would think that that was their solution. They tried to do it, and you and I commented a lot of times watching the game that the spacing was just not there. They're trying to play inside too much, but there's really not room to do that either. But you're right. UConn's size, strength, their length really impacted them and and sort of took San Diego State out of their offensive game plan, which I think ultimately is what led to this win. Danny Hurley said after the Final Four game that – it was pretty simple that they have three NBA players and great people to surround them with. And that's very similar to that Jerome Tang quote that you mentioned a couple weeks ago about just having dudes on the team. They had dudes. And I feel like San Diego state's only real option when their shots weren't falling were to do something out of their comfort zone, which was to shoot threes. And that's something San Diego state hasn't really liked to do in this tournament. So yeah, I mean, the the bodying people up, the being physical in the interior, that was their, what got them to the championship, but it was something that was not going to be successful based on UConn's personnel. But I think their length also kept them from shooting the ball well on the on the three-point line. They were only six for 23 shooting the ball from three. So not that's not a winning formula if you're anybody, let alone a, a team that's a significant underdog. Yeah, absolutely. So... I mean, to me, the story here is UConn just absolutely controlled the game the way they were supposed to. And, you know, hats off to them. Major props. This is their big their big one shining moment. And, and uh, I'm, I'm personally glad to see. I know you were you kind of didn't want to see UConn win, I feel like. But I do sort of enjoy this program. And I think that uh, any season we get to the end of this, not Duke or Carolina, I'm happy. Yeah, that's good perspective. That's a good way of silver lining, looking <laughs> at the silver lining, because I am not a huge fan of UConn. I've, I've known too many UConn grads who are uh, would have been very comfortable in stores last night doing damage to public property. Uh, some of those videos are absolutely wild. But I will point out, since this, several people on Twitter have said this already, but uh, UVA did scrimmage UConn before the season started and won the scrimmage so just want to say you're welcome to UConn getting you ready against an elite team I think it really showed at this point in the season that they were ready so I think UVA should take most of the credit if not all of the credit for the win (laughs) well props to UVA then I guess for helping UConn get there I guess you got to have something to hang your hat on and not that again, not I'm not trying to engage in any trash talking here. NC State didn't do anything really worthwhile. So good for UVA, I guess. <laughs> the, the one thing I can say though is NC State does hold the uh pleasure of having been one of the teams to uh defeat the national runners up in on the women's side of things. Uh state beat Iowa this year in spite of a massive performance from Caitlin Clark which is a theme. Yes. I think we should both hang banners for that. Yeah, absolutely. Hang banners for the, the, the preseason win and the win during the regular season. So yeah, this is, seems like a good way to transition to talking about the women's championship, which was a game that I was really excited about. It was in some ways I was more excited about that game than the men's championship just because of a lot of big personalities involved in the game. Caitlin Clark had had such an amazing tournament. You've got Kim Mulkey and her polarizing figure, I guess we should say. Uh, Angel Reese was having an amazing tournament. And then you get to the game and 
LSU just puts on an unbelievable offensive performance, scoring triple digits. What was your takeaway from LSU coming away with the win there? Well, first of all, I think one of the biggest things here is the state of the women's game and the dynamism here and the attention that it grabbed. So before we get into the game itself, the the championship game garnered 9.9 million viewers, which is more than any women's college basketball game ever, more than any major league soccer game ever, more than any, any Stanley Cup game since 1973, more than the last Orange Bowl, the last Sugar Bowl, more than any Thursday night football game, more than the 2021 NBA Finals, more than the 2020 World Series, more than the finale of The Last of Us, and more than the most recent all-star games in all professional leagues in America. So people are paying attention, which is huge. And what they tuned in to see was tremendous basketball. I mean, the we, we were kind of texting about it during the game, and it's not as though Iowa put up their best defensive performance um, or maybe they did, which is kind of sad. But LSU also wasn't great defensively. But just the scoring. I mean, this was high-level offensive basketball. And it was just – it was so much fun to watch from beginning to end. And I think seeing, obviously, the Caitlin Clark performance that we all have come to expect now. But how about Jasmine Carson for LSU scoring, what, 21 points in the first half? just unreal and you know angel reese you mentioned uh the most double doubles in a single season um in division one uh women's college basketball history this team this lsu team was crafted quite literally um, by kim mulkey who you mentioned it i mean look we don't have to get too far into it but she's got a a complicated legacy probably as a leader of people and there's some things that she and I definitely don't agree on. She is a tremendous basketball coach, and she put together an amazing roster here that was able to withstand one of the greatest stars of basketball that we've ever seen, men's or women's, and Caitlin Clark. So those LSU players, I'm happy for them. They uh, played a hell of a game. Am I happy for Kim Mulkey? Almost never, but the players and the rest of the the program – you know, hats off to them and, and what a what a performance to get their first title in program history. One of the things that I always hear people who aren't as into women's basketball say is, oh, they just can't shoot the ball. There's not enough shooters. There's not enough scoring. Here were two elite shooting teams. LSU shooting almost 65% from three-point range in the game. That's insane. Now, again, some of it is Iowa's defense was horrendous. They often play a 2-3 zone to have to avoid some of their height disadvantages and their defensive imbalances that they have. And LSU did a really, really good job of putting Caitlin Clark, particularly in the first half, into screen and roll and really just attacking her off the dribble, which you know she had a couple of fouls and didn't want to pick up other fouls. And so... She was being even more conservative than she otherwise would. But she's not a plus defender, I think, at this point in her career. So LSU had a really, really good game plan, and Iowa was not able to back it up defensively. But man, the shooting in this game was crazy. In the second half, it was just back and forth. Caitlin Clark would drain a three. LSU would come right back down and 
uh, Carson would hit a three. It was it was a lot of fun to watch. I, I'm somebody who generally likes to see some amount of defense, but I was captivated by the back and forth of the game. And I think it's it's a shame that the discourse of this game has deteriorated to talking about taunting and talking about Kim Mulkey and all these other things afterwards because LSU played great basketball. Caitlin Clark played amazing basketball throughout the entire tournament. And it really is a highlight of just the sport of women's basketball. And also, I think, like you said, just society waking up to the fact that there are a lot of really good women's basketball players that deserve attention. Yeah, and it's tough because there's a lot to distract. I mean, we also didn't mention the fact that the officiating in this game was god-awful. And even that was a distraction from the performances that that, that we've already been talking about. And, and we'd be remiss not to mention Alexis Morris, like down the stretch in that game, just could not be stopped. And some of that was a product of the defense wasn't excellent. But she also was making tough pull-up jumpers and floaters and... You know, that's still like you still got to make the shots. Even when the defense isn't great, you still have to be able to put the ball in the basket. And I, I just that was there throughout. And I think that watching it would be a person would be pretty hard pressed to watch this and still come away thinking, man, women's basketball has no entertainment value. There's no thrill here. Like that that's crazy to me. I, I think if you're if you're saying that after this after a game like this, like you're you're working pretty hard to to confirm your own uh, prejudice there, and I think that um, look, I, I'm not going to give uh, personally. I, I don't really want to give Kim Mulkey a whole lot of airtime. You know, I think that if she really wants to be an even greater coach, she could uh, you know understand and, and value who her players are as people. But that's as much as I'll say about that. Obviously, the the national, maybe even global discourse is about the taunting stuff and look there's a lot to unpack there but i guess the place i'd want to start is is this would we even be having this conversation in a men's game like would we like we do talk about some of the nba players like draymond and and dylan brooks because it's repeated over and over and over and over and over again and gets a little out of hand sometimes but if this were just one college basketball game with 19, 20-year-old kids and we saw what we saw, would it even be a topic of discussion? Yeah, I don't think so at all. We have a long legacy of liking smack talk and people showing up other people. You know, you could think you could think in other sports too, like the the indelible image of baseball in the last 10 years. Uh, was the Jose Bautista home run bat flip, right? And so people had a big discourse about whether that was disrespectful. And, you know, I think it's I think it's cool. We, it, I don't think there's an amount of trash talk or taunting in sports that is bad, assuming that the language is not, you know, like people aren't throwing slurs around at each other or saying something wildly offensive, assuming that it's just in the context of, the performance that they're exhibiting on the court or on the field. I think it's great. It adds nothing but excitement, but you're right. This is, this is coded in a way because it's women's sports and it's also now black females who are maybe the ones that are being seen as doing the taunting. Caitlin Clark had been taunting players throughout the entire tournament in a way that everybody found really cool 
and now it's the championship and now angel reese somehow is like a villain i mean she was going to win the championship i thought it was insanely cool that she's out there having the confidence to be able to do those things and give it back a little bit to caitlin clark caitlin clark has also come out and said today like it's totally fine for her to do those things so i don't know i think that should just shut up that conversation and we should be able to focus on women athletes as being equals and not have a whole separate conversation about like the manners of sports no i mean like you know me and i will talk in the grocery store like i trash talking to me is almost a fundamental part of existing (laughs) as a as a incredibly competitive person I love it. And and to me, it is, I also will say, like, it's part of personal motivation. I like that sometimes I feel like good trash talk can motivate your opponent and just raise the level of competition as a whole, which personally I think is a good thing, even in the competition. Like, you know, I want that high level of competition. The Look, I mean, I, I I'm not going to pretend like the entirety of what Angel Reese was doing is exactly what Caitlin Clark had done, right? You and I talked about it. I think that the the taunting at the free throw line with a little under a minute to go, totally cool. I I, I do think the like kind of stalking her down the court at the end of the game was a bit much for me. <laughs> not even from like a this is classless and trashy or whatever perspective like we've seen some other people say i think it's just like go enjoy this with your team if i'm her teammate i'm kind of like hey come on let's celebrate like we're who cares about them at this point we've beat them we took care of them let's enjoy this together you know to call it classless that was my other favorite twitter search was just to look look for the word classless it went from being a dog whistle to just like a megaphone there's no question in my mind there's racial motivation here when you see it differently. I think when you look at Caitlin Clark talking trash and you look at Angel Reese talking trash, you have uproar about just Angel Reese. There, it's very clear what the difference is. And it, it to me, it's just a it's an opportunity for reflection. I'm not saying that to like even be overcritical of anybody or whatever, right? But it might be time, if that's your reaction, it might be time to just look in the mirror, do a little reflecting, and think, like, why do I see it differently? Why do I have a problem with Angel Reese doing this, but I kept my mouth shut when it was Caitlin Clark doing it, or I ignored her doing it? What's the difference? You and I know what that is, but I think some people need to do some real thinking on that. The interesting follow-up to that that I would be interested in your take on LSU seemed extremely motivated by their perceived disrespect that Iowa may have given South Carolina. And I don't really think I saw Iowa specifically that way. I know Don Staley gave some very poignant comments after their loss defending her team and kind of hinting at a lot of the language from journalists that you know coded language that her team has to just play through with uh, racial overtones but I, I didn't see Iowa and how they played against South Carolina as doing anything other than you know trying to win the game they understood that South Carolina was going to really 
you know, hammer the offensive glass and that if the game came down to just playing them straight up, that they weren't going to be able to do that. So they, you know, really played four people on the interior and dared South Carolina to shoot. But LSU, almost in a Michael Jordan-like way, seemed to take offense at that and use that as motivation. I don't know if you thought there was anything untoward about what Iowa did against South Carolina or if that was just kind of a motivational tactic that LSU came up with. No, I think this is the stupidest thing in the whole saga is the fact that like LSU seemed to take some motivation from that's just game planning. Like that's just a scouting report on South Carolina and finding a relatively innovative way to defend them um, from a coach who is, has been known to be relatively inventive on defense. And so I think that to the fact that LSU somehow took that personally, I mean, Angel Reese said like, those are my sec girls and they disrespected that. Like, no, they like it's, it's the scouting report. And, and I think the one thing you could say is like, there was the play where, uh, the South Carolina player had the ball at the top and Caitlin Clark kind of gave that sort of like wave off. Like, yeah, go ahead and shoot it. Maybe that's disrespectful and I could get that. But at the same time, like pretty sure she missed the shot. So <laughs> it's just kind of like they, and they won, they got to the championship game. I like, I don't know. I don't know how you look at that and see it as anything other than good scouting, good coaching, good basketball. It worked for them. Like it wasn't meant to take it personally. They have one. Like you get to that point, you're in the final four. Your goal is singular. You are just trying to go win a championship. So it's not like Iowa went out there and was like, "Man, how can we embarrass South Carolina? How can we offend them personally?" That's not the goal. They just want to go win a championship. So I think some of it gets a little dramatic. But yeah, I, I fine if, if that's what motivates them and then they feel like they want to come out there and talk as they play, like go for it again. I think we should allow this. I'm with you. As long as it's not, you know, slurs and like hate speech or threats or anything like that, these, these players should be able to be allowed to say whatever they want to say to each other. Um, It gets the competitive juices flowing. I love it. I do think that the women's game, as much as it's grown, it needs better officiating at this point. And I think that's maybe true for the men's game, too. I think there have been a lot of really poor officiated games. But at a national stage for the national championship to have officiating that bad, there were 37 fouls called in 40 minutes of play. Iowa had to start the fourth quarter with three of its starters on the bench with foul trouble at a really critical period where they needed to reduce their deficit. And it made a huge difference in the game. And it it felt like Iowa got a bunch of ticky-tack calls on them early, and then the refs decided, okay, well, we got to call some stuff on LSU now because it was so one-sided for a while. And I think that that is like an embarrassment that has to be fixed. I think that's universal on both levels, men's and women's. But with, with women's basketball raising its profile, you cannot have a situation like that. You can't have a situation where they're calling technical fouls when caitlin clark just taps a ball when returning to her huddle i mean that's just ridiculous it makes it seem amateur when you have two teams that are competing at the absolute highest level with fans are clamoring to see a generational player in clark and an upstart team in lsu who had never won a championship before like it 
don't know. That whole thing bummed me out as much as I was excited by the game. And, you know, I, I'm bummed out about the officiating. I'm bummed out about the discourse because I really do think that there's an opportunity. Like, even, even as a UVA fan, I'm super excited about next year and the recruits that, you know, the energy that UVA has. They, you know, their rival Virginia Tech was in the final four. So, I, you know, you could envision a really cool rivalry developing between the two teams going forward, but it's it's kind of lousy to have to think about this other stuff. Yeah, I, I'm with you big picture. I think the officiating is bad, and I think it is bad on, on both the men's and women's side of things. It's bad down to the... <laughs> down to the amateur level down like the 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 high school level down through youth ball through like we've seen bad officiating in the nba this year i i think that officials in general are struggling to keep up with increased speed of the game elevated skill of players i think they're just having a hard time and i think officiating at all levels has suffered and this has to be a priority of the ncaa it has to be a priority of high school associations it has to be a priority of the naia of the NBA, the WNBA, everybody to have better trained officials and whatever needs to go into that. This to me, this is like, you're so worried about transfer portal and NIL regulations and all this stuff. And I'm not saying that stuff's not important, but at the end of the day, then these kids are going to go play a game that has to be properly officiated. And I, I think it just has to be priority number one. Now, I will say the one thing that I, I'm not with you on and I, I I found myself disagreeing with a lot of people was the technical on Caitlin Clark. I actually don't have an issue with because like it's not within the context of a poorly officiated game. It's not great and it's a bummer and it's not what any of us want to see. That being said, the officiating crew said they had issued a warning uh, for delay of game before and that is a textbook delay of game call. It's not about demonstrative. It's not about showing up the officials or anything like that. And, and and I don't love the rule, but by the rule, if if they've been given a warning and then she does that, like that is a delay of game technical. And so to me, it's not the thing that I'm mad about. It's not like I, I'm not saying I love it and like, well, I want to see more of that. To me, that was officials actually doing their job properly and administer, administering the game properly. I think they just in the context of the rest of what they had done, I I think it stuck out as here's a pivotal moment of a game and you're giving a technical that is the fourth foul for the best player in the game, which none of us want to see. But that doesn't really make you exempt from the rules. If they had really been given a warning, you know, that's just kind of what the rule is and it sucks to see, but it is the rule. So, you know, I don't, I don't really have a major issue with that one. The only thing about that is it's not like it was a delay of game warning on a made basket where the clock is running. I mean, she literally just tapped the ball on a dead ball. She didn't hurl it into the stands. She just tapped it as she was walking. Like she, she didn't even, I mean, it was almost so aimless and thoughtless to just tap the ball. Like there was no intent behind it. So I did kind of have a problem with that. And I think it was magnified compared to, the other things that weren't called, you have Kim Mulkey literally wrestling with an official on the sideline, being on the court. They made contact several times, and that got nothing. I mean, you and I both know as coaches that the number one thing you cannot do is touch an official, period. Like, you can't. That's an automatic technical, possibly ejection. 
Yeah, no, you're you're right. Like the con the, again, the bigger context is important. You can, yeah, I should Kim Mulkey have gotten a technical for her contact with an official. One hundred percent, they can both be true. I, I I get what you're saying. I don't think that the I think in the moment the Caitlin Clark technical probably wasn't warranted, and, and I I can understand that, or I can see that perspective. I can see a ref just letting it go. I just think like I saw some people on Twitter who were just like this this was the most egregious officiating thing in this game, and it wasn't. Um, there were so many bigger issues and I think just from half to half from possession to possession it was officiated inconsistently which is what we're seeing at a lot of levels right now and it just makes it hard as a coach and as a player to know what to expect you know as a coach I think the language we always try to use with officials is just help me know what to teach my kids right how can I position them to to play as competitively as possible within the rules right within the rules as they're being enforced in this game so if I know that one something a particular type of contact is going to be allowed on one end, then I should be able to tell my kids that like, hey, that's going to be allowed on this end as well. It should be consistent. If if there's a certain interpretation of a rule at one point in the game in the first half, it should be the same in the second half. And I think that that's where we ran into some issues in this game in particular. It definitely was not appealing to watch in the moment given the stage, but I don't want it. To take away, I, I certainly don't want to suggest that LSU is not a deserving champion. They oh, no. absolutely were. You can't score over <laughs> over 100 points uh, against a team that had been just so dynamic and not deserve the championship. They, they absolutely uh, got what they deserved. So congrats to UConn. Congrats to LSU. Two universities that I really don't care for. And... <laughs> You know, reflecting now, I kind of wonder, I kind of get this way at the end of every season. I love the NCAA tournament. I love college football. And then the champions are almost always with like one major lifetime exception as a UVA fan. Champions are always schools that I don't really care for. Like, does that ever change your calculation at this point or maybe maybe i hate more schools than you do well i think you definitely hate more schools than i do but to me that's kind of a chicken of the egg thing right is it that the schools you don't like are winning or do you not like them because they're winning right i I think that as fans we often have disdain for programs that have sustained success if they're not our favored programs and so i think that that falls into it right why do we hate coach k and duke so much well they won a lot like why do i hate carolina so much well i I could write an entire book but a lot of it has to do with the success that they have had i'm not above admitting that and so i think that some of that has to do with it but yeah i mean i I don't i don't have as much hatred for like uconn i have no reason to hate them like lsu as a whole i have no reason to hate them kim mulkey is her own thing there are figures that i don't like but yeah, I, I guess I don't I don't hold as much hatred for other programs as you do for sure, unless they are Carolina, Duke, Clemson at time. You know, like it's really limited to just immediate rivals. I think that's fair. I think a lot of it has to do with coaching personalities, as you alluded to. And I think fan bases definitely have some of their own cultures and personalities that some are more tolerable or less tolerable than others so you know like iowa i have nothing against iowa i I don't really even know anyone from iowa so if they had been happy great san diego state i met some nice san diego state people out in sacramento they seemed very nice 
So I would have been happy for them. But it's not that I hate UConn in the way that I, you know, might hate a school like Maryland, for example, Mm. but I just would not have preferred them to win, I think. That's fair. No, I I can I can appreciate that. I, you know, I do obviously have allegiances within tournaments or things that I'll determine. I, you know, I don't want this team to win or whatever. You know, I think it's definitely the personalities can can lead into teams that I like or, or dislike at a given time. But I, I'm I'm fairly content with these winners, and you know, we can always just we can always just invite both teams to the White House if we want, right? Oh yeah, I think we can all agree. I think we can come across partisan lines and as a country, and agree that that was not great. Yeah, they tried to walk don't, it back today. Don't invite the losing team to come. Yeah, I saw their their spokes. Yeah, Clark Clark also was like, "Oh, that was super nice, but no, no, thank you. <laughs> not how this works, right?" And like again, like I I I don't think there's a whole bunch to that necessarily. I guess I don't know, but I feel like the first lady attended this event and was like, Oh my God, this is awesome. Can we just invite everyone? That's sort of how it came across to me. You know, we talked about if the roles were reversed, what would that look like? But I don't know. I just think it's another thing for people to get upset about. And we got bigger fish to fry. You know, if this becomes like a political issue, that's ridiculous. But yeah, I, I look, this was fun. And, and both, I enjoyed both tournaments greatly and I'm I really am glad people are paying more attention to the women's game now and I hope that that continues. I know that among UVA fans there's a lot of excitement right now as you mentioned earlier so you know lots to pay attention to as we move forward. Lots of excitement. ACC programs are are high up on the list in women's basketball and in men's I think you'll see the ACC make a resurgence nationally next year. Um, I'm excited to get into that stuff. And over the next few weeks, I think we'll be talking about some transfer portal things and just sort of looking ahead at, at what we've got uh, coming up as we start to think about the next season in, you know, both football and basketball. Maybe we'll talk some baseball or something somewhere in there. Yeah. Got to get into some lacrosse talk. You do lacrosse team is good. I'll, I'll win you over with lacrosse. Yeah, I doubt that. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I can be a UVA lacrosse fan because state doesn't I'll, I'll have keep lacrosse. trying though. Well, there you go. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Sign you up. Yeah, this is this is um it's simultaneously like, you know, deflating to get to the end of the basketball season. It seems like a big daunting spring and summer with no football, no basketball, but at the same time there's so much going on with coaches moving around and transfer portal and people going to the NBA and uh, spring practices that there's just going to be so much to talk about and look forward to filling the airways with speculation and dreams and it's it's always my favorite part of playing like any sports video game is doing that like off-season maneuvering trying to figure out what the roster is going to look like next year so oh it's so much it. it's so much fun and i think that the uh the podcast off season is fun too. We can, you know, I feel we can give a general teaser that we're looking to have some fun guests on to over this time and going to continue to build that out and look for new opportunities and things like that as this thing grows. I am going to go ahead and say, I don't think we mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but I am on vacation. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and call it here. It's been, it's been a good hour and, and I'm going to go enjoy the beach breeze blowing through my long locks of hair (laughs) all two of them 